Welcome to the Church at Lake Mead, and this is our sermon podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, we want to say thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you again soon. Here is today's message. So we're in this series uh, entitled Return of the King. And we started a few weeks ago, and um, we're, it's a study on the end times. And we started with a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And it started like this. The disciples were walking among the temple. It was a grand temple that Herod had built. And it took decades to build this temple. It was one of the you know, marvels of the ancient world. It was just incredible. And so the disciples were pointing it out to Jesus and they said, man, see these beautiful buildings, this beautiful temple. It was a source of national pride for sure for the Jews. And then Jesus says something that's just startling, just shocking. He says these words, he says, I answered them, he said, do you see all these, do you not? All these stones and, and beautiful pillars. I say to you, there will not be one, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then I showed you this picture from a couple of weeks ago. And about a month ago, I was in Jerusalem and I was at this very location. This is at the Temple Mount, this is just below it. And these are the stones that are remnants of that terrible, terrible destruction of the temple that happened about 40 years after Jesus said those words. About 40 years after he said that startling statement. And you gotta remember that for people hearing that, that had to be almost unbelievable. Like how in the world is that even possible? They had to have been thinking that, like that these stones could be thrown down like you're describing. And yet Jesus was spot on. And so that brings us uh, to, brings the disciples to want more answers. I mean, I think I'd be the same way. And so Jesus and his disciples make that quick walk over across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And while they're with Jesus, they ask him the question. They said, Jesus, when? When are these things gonna happen? You know, when are you gonna be the king, you know? When, are you, when is your kingdom gonna come? You're just, you're teaching and you're, you're healing, but we believe you're the Messiah. Like, when is this all happening? And remember, these disciples had two misconceptions. Number one, they did not see the cross coming. They, they did not realize he, he came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. They did not see that coming. And number two, they had the misconception that God's kingdom was gonna arrive right then, immediately it would begin. But what they didn't know is the only crown Jesus would wear would be a crown of thorns. And that later his, his coronation would, would occur, but it wouldn't happen until he came in power. And we're gonna kind of un, unpack that actually today. So last two weeks ago, we were in that talk on, this, on, the, on the Mount of Olives. And I wanna pick it up right again where we left off two weeks ago and kind of bring us into this final judgment, this battle of Armageddon. So you guys excited? Okay, I know you are. Okay, here we go. So here we go. All right, Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let, no, let the one on the housetop go down, uh, let, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Luke records the same teaching. He adds a little clarity to it, I think. All right, look what Luke says. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. So let me unpack this a second. 
So Jesus is saying, in the near future, right, there's gonna be this awful catastrophic event and Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. And when you see that, you're gonna be tempted as a, as a good nationalistic Jew, you're gonna be tempted to defend your homeland. You're gonna be tempted to fight those armies. And I'm telling you, don't do it. That's what Jesus is actually saying. I'm saying when you see that, it's time for you to head out of town. Don't go back and get your coat. <laughs> don't go down into the house and pick yourself up. Get out of town, right? And, and we know that, as I said, about in, the, in the late 60s, around 66 AD, the Roman attack on Jerusalem and on Israel began, the Roman war. It took several years, but by 70 AD, Jerusalem is surrounded. And Josephus, a, a historian of the day, records that a million Jews die in that war and in that destruction. Now he could be exaggerating numbers, historians aren't quite sure, but we do know it was a terrible, terrible loss of life. And if they had listened to Jesus, they would have been saved from that destruction. And so Jesus is saying, look, I know you have an instinct and that's to fight, don't fight. Realize this is part of God's judgment. This is a big judgment sermon. I'm just warning you up front. <clears throat> but we're gonna talk about how judgment works and what God feels about judgment, but that's what his warning is. Well, this, this would have been really hard for the disciples to understand. And then Jesus begins, and we're not gonna go through verse by verse through this whole thing, because I wanna get to Revelation, but he starts to talk of other cataclysmic events that are happening. In fact, if you read Matthew 24, if you read Luke 21, if you read Mark 13, those are the three places where this teaching is all recorded. You'll see that it's actually almost as if Jesus is pushing two events together because he talks about this event in Jerusalem, this destruction of the temple, which as I said, happened about 40 years after, but he also begins to talk about his return the king of, of kings is returning and the end of all the world is gonna happen. And Jesus sandwiches these two together. Uh, professor George Ladd, he's a, a scholar and a professor and he, he writes this about, about Matthew 24. He says, the, the prediction of the sudden and soon destruction of the temple is purposely intertwined with the events that surround the return of Jesus. The near event, of the temple's destruction is a symbol for the far event. Uh, Professor Mark Strauss, he puts it this way. He says that these two events, the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus are telescoped together so that the first one is a signpost for the second one. Or you could put it this way. Jesus had it spot on about what was to happen to the temple in 70 AD. And that gives us confidence he'll be spot on about his return. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. This, is, this is really significant. In fact, in the world of scholarship, and I don't wanna bore you out there, okay? But scholars have actually debated on the dates of these, of these gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, because Jesus' predictions are so vivid and so correct. Many scholars are trying to push the dates of those letters or those, those gospels after 70 AD because it's so uncanny that such an unlikely thing was predicted so accurately by Jesus. That's all I'm gonna say about that. That's pretty interesting though. All right, so his, his words in Matthew 24 
are words of, 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 of earth-shaking events that lead up to the return of Jesus. But this is not the first time you see these earth-shaking events in scripture. In fact, Jesus is pulling on a strand of Jewish prophecy that's all through the Old Testament. All right, so I'm gonna do a quick survey of some of these Old Testament prophets that talked about this great distress. And they had a name for it. It was called the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. Let's look at these kind of quickly. This is in Joel. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And if you're reading what Jesus writes in Matthew, you say, yeah, who, who can endure it? That's a, that's a terrifying day, the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Here's Zechariah's version, Zechariah 14. The day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. This is interesting because Jerusalem, once again, is in the crosshairs of history. It's not the Roman army that's gonna surround Jerusalem, but this text says all nations. And so we are now not thinking of what happened in 70 AD, we're thinking of a future event that's still future for us, when it seems as if the nations will once again be gathered against Jerusalem. But this time, instead of the nations succeeding in destroying Jerusalem, like what happened in 70, this time the Lord will fight for, for Israel. Amen. All right, let's go back to Joel. Here's another text. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will sit to judge the, all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. All right, this gives us an interesting little insight into how judgment works in scripture. This idea of a, of a wine press being full, other places in scripture, it's almost as if a cup fills up, the cup of God's wrath. And how we're to understand this, isn't that God is angry. This is actually a picture of God's patience. It's as if God is saying, I'm patient with people. I want people to repent and I'm gonna allow people time to repent. In fact, I'm gonna let world events unfold. I'm slow to anger, right? And I'm, I'm, I want people to repent. But at some point, at some point, the wine press is full, the cup is full. At some point, I call it. And at that point, I have to say, I'm stopping it. A lot of times people see uh, God as a wrathful God in the Old Testament and he's gracious in the New Testament, but actually both are, are kind of caricatures. The Old Testament God is a God of great mercy and love for those who have rebelled against him. If you think of the story of Jonah and Nineveh, Jonah is sent. Jonah's the one that's not really merciful, but Yahweh is sending him to warn the Ninevites, please, please turn, please turn. I have no delight in judgment. But this same theme is actually in the Psalms, this, this theme of, of the nations rising against Yahweh. And this is in Psalm two, Check, this is very interesting. Look at Psalms two. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? Man, that's a, that's a legit question today, right? Like, man, 
what is, why Putin? Like, why is everyone so angry, right? Don't you just ever just look at the news? What in the world, guys, right? There's just something about us as humans, right? That's actually the point. Like we just can't stop fighting each other or God, right? We're gonna get there. So why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? It says the kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's actually, in, if this were the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the anointed one is a word for Messiah. They're, they're fighting against the Messiah. But notice their psychology. Look in verse three. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. This gives you an insight into the heart of rebellion that is just so common among humans, including me. Man, we see God as a master to resist instead of a father to embrace. Instead of a good father, he's... He's seen as a tyrant. Let's break our chains from the slavery to God, they say. And in their futile plans, they war against Yahweh. It says, the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In his anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. So this is kind of the Old Testament picture of God dealing with the nations, God promising judgment one day, a day of Yahweh, a day of the Lord, a day when the nations will be gathered and God will say, enough, enough. You know, a lot of times the people try to have, they have a hard time with the concept of God's judgment. I'm going to go on a short rabbit trail and get right back on the trail here because today is a little limited. And a lot of times we really don't understand hell. We don't understand that. And we don't understand like, how does, how does a loving God send anyone to hell and all these questions. A lot of times I think that these questions arise from a place of misunderstanding, right? If we are to understand the biblical story of God and his love and his desire for a relationship with human beings, we understand that God wants a relationship that's freely offered and freely received. But there is a possibility in that kind of a context of one of the parties, and it's not God, it's us, that's not interested in the relationship. Like, I don't want, you've been maybe rejected one day, guys, when you had a romantic overture to some lady. Like, hey, you wanna go out? Nope, not interested, right? Like, oh, okay, right? Love, love can't be forced. Lewis put it this way, C.S. Lewis put it this way, in the end, those who go to hell are successful rebels. They've rebelled to the point where they are no longer interested in any redemption. He also called hell God's tourniquet. It's God saying, I'm not gonna let the infection spread any longer. I'm holding the evil back. We'll go back through that again a little bit later. The New Testament also picks up this idea of God's judgment. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 2. He says this, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. This is the day of Yahweh again. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. 
So here's again, this, this idea that, man, the more we're, we persist in our rebellion, the more we persist in our stubbornness, the more we allow, and this is really key friends, the more we allow sin to distort our moral reasoning. And when we get to the place where we actually think God is a master to be resisted instead of a father to be embraced, the more we allow that to just mess our moral reasoning up, and we persist in rebellion and we persist in stubbornness, it's almost as if we're living on credit and every day we live, our debt gets larger and we're storing up more and more judgment. That's the image here. But I want to show you the heart of God in judgment. Jesus, that same week of his life, the same week he talks about Jerusalem's soon destruction, he looks over the city. In verse chapter 19 of Luke, I want you to see what Jesus says. This is, this is what the judge says about the guilty defendant, if you wanna use that language. Look what he says. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and look at it, friends, he wept over it. This does not seem like a man who's ready to judge and excited about it. This is not some eager judge, like I cannot wait to mete out punishment. This is a weeping judge who says these words. If even, if you, even you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus says in Matthew, I want to gather you like a mother hen gathers his chicks or her chicks, but you would not. That's the heart behind this. So last week we went to the book of Revelation and we were introduced to a very different Jesus, a 10 foot Jesus, right? With these blazing eyes and this sword that's coming out of his mouth. And we said, listen, this is the expectation of scripture. Friends, if we're following the narrative, if we took the prophets and we took the Psalms and we took what Paul writes, like we're, we're not surprised if we get to the end of the book to see a judgment figure, right? That's what we expect. And so the 10 foot tall Jesus comes out. But before he judges anyone, he looks at his own church and he examines us. And that was last week's message is Jesus looks at the church and he's seeing who's, who's complicit with the beast, who's faithful to the lamb. Man, I want us to know this friends. And this is so key because it's so tempting to have a we're right, they're wrong attitude. When friend, let me just say, the fact that the, the lamb will judge all of us should first cause humility and repentance right here. There should not be one of us says, yeah, go get him, Jesus. Like that is the absolute wrong attitude. The attitude is Jesus, we are praying for repentance. We are praying for our friends who don't know Jesus. We are praying that they turn. We, we weep like Jesus does over the city. Are you with me, church? That's the attitude. That's the attitude. So we meet this 10 foot Jesus and let's get into it. This is later in the book of Revelation. I'm doing a flyover, but there's lots of imagery, lots of seals and trumpets and all this stuff, right? Uh, if you know the story or the, the vision of Revelation, but essentially all of it, all of the imagery, all of the vials and the seals and, the, and all, the, all the, the images that you see of these judgments are basically ways to describe this battle that's gonna kind of come. 
And we're in Matthew or Revelation 16. They gathered the kings. There's the imagery from, from Psalms. The kings are gathered into the place that is in the Hebrew called Armageddon. I saw in heaven <clears throat> standing open and there was before me a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. There's his eyes again. They're like blazing fire and on his head, are many crowns and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. So it's that same image from chapter one with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine press. There's that imagery from Joel of his fury of the wrath of God almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the last battle. This is when Jesus comes. There are many tr different interpretations on how the sequence plays out. I'm not interested in chasing those shiny objects. Remember I told that in, in the first uh, sermon, like there's a lot of ways we could go here. We're staying with the main thing. And the main theme is the, the prophetic expectation of the day of Yahweh is fulfilled when Jesus returns and he's gonna judge the nations. Out of his mouth is that sword. Now, this is very uh, symbolic, right? These are symbols. The sword coming out of his mouth is actually the word of God. And he's gonna, he's gonna judge the nations using the word of God, the word of his truth. And he's gonna judge correctly. He's gonna judge righteously. I'm gonna turn to some application in a second. But before I do, I want anyone who's wants, a, like if you're a visual learner and you want like a, a visual, visual, like here, here's the visual, okay? So the first coming of the Messiah, this is when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He comes, right? He lives for those 30 years. He ministers. He's raised in power. That's Easter. Remember the first week? That's when the end times start. All right? So when you take the quiz next week, you'll get that answer right, okay? We're now waiting for the second coming of Jesus when he will return in judgment. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem, and that gives us great confidence he's gonna be right about the return of his, of his reign. Also the fact that he pulled that trick of like coming back from the dead, that helps me with Jesus too, okay? <laughs> All right. Um, I always tell that to people. There's, there's a lot of, can I go on another really quick rabbit trail? Just really quick. There's a lot of folks today, they're called deconstructionists and they're deconstructing their faith. They're saying, you know, there's so much church hurt and hypocrisy and, whatever the reasons are, and they're all different. And I don't wanna like paint everyone with the same brush, but they're basically coming to the conclusion that they're not sure Christianity is true or worth, worth their time. I just wanna look at them and I just wanna say with such tenderness, friend, Jesus still rose from the dead. Look, I get that sometimes we don't understand why things happen or why God allows things or why pastors do what they do or whatever, whatever. But let me look at you put my hand on your shoulders, look at you right in the eye and say, listen, Jesus rose from the dead. That didn't change last Tuesday. That's still true. And I get you have questions and I wanna be a community that asks questions. Friends, I've said this before, I am a skeptic. I can't help, I cannot turn my mind off, right? That's just how God wired me. So if you're a skeptic, if you have questions, man, me and you are buddies because that's me. I live there, right? But this is, the, this is why I'm a Jesus follower. 
I'm absolutely convinced this guy was publicly crucified on the cross on Friday and he's out of that tomb on Sunday. I'm convinced that's true. I am 100% convinced that actually happened. And I would love to give you a hundred reasons why and I could and I would and let's do it, let's have coffee. But the, and I wrote in Power of Yes all about that. But like the point is, right? Like that's our anchor stone for the entire Christian faith that Jesus defeated death. Guys, next week, I'm gonna talk about heaven. Like, I cannot wait for next week's sermon. This was the hard one. Like, let's get, but there's so much hope ahead for us, friends, because he defeated the enemy death. Okay, I'm back on the, okay. So that's the visual. Let's turn to some application. So we believe there's a judgment one day. We believe as hard as this might be in a modern world to actually believe that there is a God that will come to judge us, we believe that. That is what we believe as Christians. So what, how does that change my today? How does that change me today? And this is where I wanna help us apply this. I think there's at least two things this does for us. Number one, and this is really important, we can rest in the fact that God is just. Amen. Guys, there are some of you here that have endured terrible things in your life. And the enemy wants nothing more than to let those things be sources of bitterness and hatred. And the, and the, and the quest for revenge is such a tyrant and I can look at you and I can say, it is not fair and it is not gonna go unnoticed. Rest in the just, justice of God. You can give your enemy your forgiveness and you can give God your revenge. He's in charge, he'll take care of all things. And in the meantime, pray for your enemies. That is Jesus's command to us, pray for them. Yeah. Don't delight in their coming judgment. Just rest, God, you'll take care of it. I have the blessing of taking this off of my shoulders. Number two, in this theme of resting in God's judgment, we live in a world of terrible violence. It can keep you up at night. How does all this go on and God not stop it? The rapists, the murderers go on and on and on. And there are people who walk away from faith because of these reasons. God should not allow that. Friend, listen, he will stop it in his time. He isn't a blind eye to these things. We believe in the judgment of God, but we also believe, and I think we're all here thankful for this about God. He's very merciful too. And if you're not thankful for his mercy and his patience, you need to do a, a little soul searching because if God is to judge all of us, he, he judges me too, right? Like it's, it's the judgment of God starts right here and right through me, right? And so that's really key. We live in a world that's fighting for social justice. The, the, the cry for, uh, against injustice is all over the place. And I think the church has a responsibility to fight injustice. And we have for 2000 years. 
We were the ones that fought for abolition of slavery. We were the ones that fought for people who were poor that needed help. We were the first ones to set up social welfare systems in the, in the Roman world. Do you realize how difficult it was to live in that Roman world? It was the Christians that provided all the care for those who weren't even believers because we loved our neighbors as ourselves. We need to get back to that, by the way, as a church. Yeah, I, again, I wanna, but we're almost out of time here. You guys with me here? Paul says these words in 2 Timothy. You should know this, Timothy, that in these last days or the last days, things will be very difficult. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control they will be cruel and hate what is good. Man, this seems very, very current. It's current, friends, not just because the Bible was written for us 2,000 years ago. I, you know, there's application, but this was written 2,000 years ago. But here's the thing. As humanity lives its life in rebellion against God, we do these things. We become this way. And Paul is telling Timothy, listen, this is... This is what it's like to be faithful to the lamb in a world where people don't respect and honor the lamb. We talked about this last week, like the main goal, the main job is to live faithfully to the lamb, to love our enemies, to love people, to warn them, but to love them, to, to, under, to let them understand, look, I'm in your corner, but let me just tell you, and I want all of us to understand this, this is really important. The fact is that sin affects the way we think morally. And the further we get away from the light, the more we're not gonna see things the way God sees them. And the more we're gonna call good evil and evil good, the more we're gonna live in a way that's contrary to scripture. So those of us who know the Lord and who have the light, we in love need to just like Jesus, walk among those who don't know God, be a friend of sinners and say, listen, can I pull up a chair? Can I have a relationship? Can we break bread together? Can we talk about God's love? Can I show you the truth before I preach you the truth? Because I wanna show you that it's, he's not a tyrant that you need to run from. He's a father you need to embrace. Can I get an amen to that? So important. I'm gonna leave you with this last question. And this is where you knew I was gonna go. <laughs> For 2000 years, the church has believed something really important about the return of Jesus, and here it is. He could return tomorrow. Yep. He could return tomorrow. Scholars call this eminence, the eminent return of Jesus. And you could say, well, they were foolish. He didn't return. It's been 2,000 years. Oh, were they though? I don't think it's a bad way to live, to believe Jesus could return tomorrow. I think that's actually a really good way to live. I think it's how we're supposed to live. Because I think when we think hard about our lives and our values and our priorities, keeping Jesus just over the horizon and could come over that at any moment is really healthy. There's a lot of places Brad Blakely does not need to go. There's a lot of things Brad, Bl Brad Blakely does not need to get involved in. Believing that Jesus could return at any minute keeps me sober-minded.
It keeps me focused on the kingdom. There was this term in the Bible and Chris Cockrell said, Brad, I need you to say this to the church. I'm like, okay, I will. It's called Maranatha. And it's this celebration the church would greet each other with. And it's come Lord Jesus. There was an anticipation. He could come. Jesus could come. Maranatha, hallelujah. Let me ask you a question. What would change for you if you knew Jesus was coming next week? What relationship would you try to help repair? What confession would you make? What change would happen? What priority would shift? What would be different if you truly knew Jesus was coming next week? There's a text in the book of Hebrews, I'll leave. It says, so Hebrews chapter nine, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. It's not why he's gonna come, but to save those who eagerly await him. Do you eagerly await Jesus? Would the news that he was coming next week make you happy or sad? It all depends on how you're living. Can we stand? I want us to respond to that. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to say, Jesus, if I'm being honest, I'm not 100% sure I'd be happy if you return. This is, if this is your heart, I'm trying to give you voice to a prayer if this is you. And this puts a spotlight on something that's not right in my life. I need to shift priorities. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's a prayer you make. Jesus, I want to be eagerly anticipating your return. Let me say this, friends, and I think this is true. The more committed we are to the mission of Jesus, the more excited we will be if he's returning next week. The more committed we are to the, to the purposes of God, the more we are eagerly anticipating his return. But listen, the opposite is also true. The more I'm, I could care less about the kingdom, actually it shows up with the more I really don't want him to come back. Are you with me? It's really the same. It's really true. Friend, I'm inviting us to repentance. I'm inviting us to be a church that is known for our love and our good works because we are anticipating the return of the King. Can we pray right where you are, right where you stand? Would you just close your eyes with me? Would you let the Holy Spirit do a work in your heart? Would you just give him permission to remind you of something that needs to be fixed? To search your heart? Guys, the return of Jesus really changes perspectives. Things that we think are so important really don't become that important. Literally, I don't need to go back in the house and grab my stuff. We're too attached to so many things on this world. Maybe there's a relationship and you've been hurt and you're holding a grudge. Maybe you'll let the Holy Spirit give you some wisdom about that. Maybe there's an apology you need to make. Maybe there's at least a move toward that person you need to make. Father, would you just do a work? Carolina, just sing over us. I'm gonna give you a chance to pray. If you wanna come forward and pray, 
if you wanna just be right where you are, if you wanna turn around and you wanna kneel before the king, right where you stand, you could turn and kneel. What a good practice to get used to kneeling.